Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Julia Gossard, your host today. Historians have long treated the Atlantic and Indian Ocean routes of early modern French empire separately. But early modern people understood France as a bi-oceanic empire, connected by vast but strong pathways of commercial, intellectual, and legal exchange. Lori Wood's Archipelago of Justice, Law in France's Early Modern Empire, recasts our view of France's colonial... uh, colonial empire by evaluating the interwoven trajectories of the people, like itinerant shipworkers and colonial magistrates who built France's first empire in the Atlantic and Indian Oceans in the long 18th century. Imperial subjects like these sought political and legal influence via law courts with strategies that reflected local and regional priorities, especially in regards to slavery, war, and trade. Courts became liaisons between France and new colonial possessions. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Lori Wood, assistant and actually as of this fall, associate professor of history at Florida State, congratulations, to discuss her new book, Archipelago of Justice, Law and France's Early Modern Empire, published by Yale University Press in 2020. Thank you so much for joining us, Lori. Thanks for having me. So for a little bit more of formal introduction to Dr. Wood, she is a historian of the early modern world. And her research asks, how have ordinary people made sense of a topsy-turvy, globally integrated world? She focuses on Caribbean and Indian Ocean sites of French colonization, with attention to legality, risk, and place. Of course, this question and all of these sites appear in Archipelago of Justice. Her research has been supported most recently by Princeton's Davis Center for Historical Studies, the American Society for Legal History, and the Library Company of Philadelphia. At Florida State University, she teaches courses like Pirates and Patriots in the Atlantic World and Monsoon Empires, the Indian Ocean, 800 to 1800. I'd love to take either of those courses. Those sound really fun, Lori. They're really fun to teach, too. (laughs) You know, Archipelago of Justice is a great title to think about the web of court networks that were created over the course of the long 18th century across the Atlantic and Indian Oceans that you describe. It provides some great imagery for your reader there. Why did you choose this title, and how does it reflect your argument? Yeah, so the archipelago piece of the title was really easy because I'm working on islands. Um, And so the the metaphor, the the term right for a group of islands, archipelago, sort of made sense. Um, It also made sense because I'm talking about places that aren't contiguous um, in the way that, say, like the French metropolitan provinces kind of sit next to each other, right? The same way that, like, Florida touches Georgia, Right in France, Brittany touches uh, Normandy, for example. These are all places that don't touch each other, but they're part of a whole. And so, I wanted to emphasize that kind of tension of being a part of a whole, but also being kind of physically separate. Mm-hmm. The justice piece of the title was trickier. Um, it was kind of hard to, to decide, um, and I ended up picking justice because I wanted to use a, a bit of an ambivalent word. Um, because one of the things that we see over and over again as we look at France's early modern empire is that 
it's a deeply and stubbornly unjust system. Um, these courts are in large part upholding slavery. Um, and they are, in fact, one of the chief institutions that's kind of responsible for maintaining slavery in these overseas colonies. And so one thing I wanted to kind of do with the title was to get that tension to sort of hang over the book, right? Um, to sort of let the question hang in the air. What does it mean to be a place where you go to get justice? Um, even if you know that it's a cruel system, it's a corrupt system, you might not actually get a fair shake in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other part, other sort of question I was thinking about, as I was thinking about the title, Archipelago of Justice, um, is what does it mean to kind of reconfigure a story of what historians have called the age of democratic revolutions, right? The American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, right? The kind of age that brings these de- uh, democratic republics into, into place. What happens if we think about that history, um, and especially if we think of the backstory of that, um, to kind of center the ambivalence, right? Knowing that on the one hand, courts often bring um, opportunities for participation, um, but also opportunities for injustice too. And so I wanted that to be a big piece. Um, in terms of the argument, one of the things I kind of liked about Archipelago of Justice as a title, or at least what it suggested to me, um, was that I also wanted to emphasize the way that people kind of grab onto the system, right? Grabbing onto little different pieces. That if you're in a colonial court in, say, Martinique, for example, in the Caribbean, it enables you to grab onto the whole thing, right? The whole archipelago. You can kind of navigate it once you get get there. Um, and so that, that really kind of plays into the bigger argument I can talk about um, in a little bit. Absolutely. I think that's a great explanation and really good imagery about how this web gets connected here. Mm-hmm. Archipelago of Justice, uh, you know, not only looks at various sites, but also touches on a number of historiographies, mm-hmm. most notably, as, as is very clear from your title, legal history, as well as that of imperial history. Your contributions to our understandings of the early modern French legal system is particularly important. Um, as your work really makes it clear that France's imperial legal system was essential to the growth of France's empire, as well as France's entire legal system at home as well. I, I have to say, I'm an early modern French historian, and I learned so much about how the early modern French legal system works from reading your book that really elucidated a number of issues that perhaps I had been confused about before. So I think from that standpoint, you know, this provides a very large contribution to our understanding of legal history. On top of that, though, you make the strong case not only through the individual chapters and vignettes, but through your methodology of choosing to compare colonies with each other. So Martinique with Ile de Bourbon, for example. And you say that France's ancien regime empire was wholeheartedly global, not just Atlantic. Can you explain why this is such an important intervention to the historiography of Ancien Regime France? Absolutely. Um, there's several reasons. So part of the book is talking to European historians, uh, people who think about kind of Europe as its own sort of space. Um, and to those historians, to French historians, to people working on kind of the continent, um, if you will, um, I wanted to emphasize that the colonies are always a piece of this project that we know as kind of the story of modern state building, that the way that modern mm-hmm. um, bureaucratic uh, nation states sort of emerge is always also a colonial imperial project. And so that's really kind of uh, one of the big arguments I'm trying to make is, is the colonies are always part of this. They're always um, integral to the project, even if it's not always explicit. Um, and by extension, that also means that slavery is also a big piece of this too. That slavery mm-hmm. is always a piece of the story of nation building. Um, this is probably something that maybe is less surprising in our current moment because I feel like that's something 
that especially in the United States, people are talking about, right? The way that slavery is sort of built into, baked into the American Republic kind of from the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. But it's something that I think in European historiography often gets lost because slave societies aren't touching Europe necessarily. Um, and so there can be a kind of out of sight, out of mind kind of aspect to empire, to slavery um, in the kind of European state building historiography that I think is really important to, to make sure that we're sort of telling um, alongside that more familiar story. The other, and this is maybe even a, a bigger piece to me, um, is to think about sort of the colonizer's view of um, their own goals themselves to maybe be a little bit more accurate about what empire is um, to people in the early modern period. Um, and a couple of things really sort of stood out to me from the sources I was looking at. Um, the first one is that Asia is always the goal. So we talk a lot mm. about Atlantic empires. We talk a lot about North American colonies, for example, or the Caribbean or Latin America. Um, but what I found over and over again in my sources is that Europeans who are sort of moving out into these colonial spaces who are conquering or trying to take over new territories are always trying to get to Asia because that's the real prize to them. That's where they see right. the, the real economic opportunity, and that's really where they want to be. And so I, part of the, the reason I told a global story is because I wanted to make sure that the Atlantic story gets told with the story of Asia, with the story of Europe, kind of all together, that, that all of those pieces really fit together. Um, and they fit together for people at the time. Um, and then the other thing that I think has become really clear, not only in my work, but in the work of lots of other historians, um, is that the Atlantic itself is always a really porous space. Um, we can look at the Atlantic world, we can think about the ocean, we can think about how, you know, when I teach Atlantic history, it's Europe, Africa, and the Americas, but those spaces are never just in contact with each other, they're always, people are always moving further. Um, you can see this, actually, even if you look back at the really classic Altus Richardson map of the slave trade, which a lot of people have seen, you know, from high school even, um, it's got yeah. the big red arrows, right, showing the volume of the slave trade and the big, the big red lines going um, to places like Brazil, but um, and then smaller lines going to places like North America. Um, but one thing that always kind of struck me about that map is that there are also lines going to the Indian Ocean. Um, and that's a story that we haven't been telling perhaps as prominently, um, with the exception of work by people like Lynn Campbell or um, Richard Allen, other people like that. Um, we kind of forget that, that kind of global piece. Um, and then, of course, if you're a Latin Americanist, you know this is true, too, that the Atlantic is porous because Peru's on your map. Um, and Peru's on the Pacific, right? And so thinking about the Atlantic as not just a kind of culturally sort of um, relevant kind of space, one that's kind of coherent in at least some way, but also one that's always connected to the Pacific, to the Indian Ocean, right, beyond. And so that's another big piece of of telling this kind of global story. I find that interesting what you say in terms of Asia was always a goal. Because I, I think reflecting on on what you just said there in terms of the Indian Ocean story hasn't been told as prominently is is so on the nose, but doesn't really fit with the early modern sources themselves. We see, you know, Louis the Fourteenth and Colbert having discussions about needing to move east at the same time that they were moving west. They clearly had those those ambitions of becoming a, a trade empire in Asia. Absolutely. And it's something that goes back even to Columbus, right? Um, Nicholas yeah. Way Gomez's book, you know, why did Columbus go west to go east, right? This kind of classic yeah. problem. And part of it is, is actually a practical problem. It's not um, just a kind of imaginative problem um, or phenomenon, but that, um, you know, for somebody like Columbus, he recognizes that to get to Asia, because of the way the Mediterranean is, is operating in that period, right, he has to go west. Yeah. Um, and so that ends up being, I think, a, a story that, that perhaps Latin Americanists tell a little bit better, 
mm-hmm. but it's one that I wanted to make sure that we're telling for this historiography as well. Absolutely. I just think that your book adds so much to our historiographical knowledge for the long 18th century in France and looks at not only issues in the metropole, but in its colonies all across the world as well. Thinking about this, you know, looking at the vast number of places that you examine in this book, you must have done quite a bit of archival research across the globe. Um, I was telling Lori before we started, Lori and I both went to the University of Texas at Austin to get our PhDs. She was a few years ahead of me in the program. And I remember one day, wide-eyed, looking to her travel plans of how she was going to travel all across um, basically the early modern French globe to go to all of these different archives. And I always admired her for that. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you undertook research for such a monumental project like this. Absolutely. Um, And it's a problem that I think a lot of us have, especially in grad school when we're dealing with limited travel funds, um, especially in our current moment when it's hard to to go places. Um, And it was also just kind of a a, a kind of an insurmountable mental mountain to climb to, right? Think about like, how do you go all these places? Um, Ultimately, I went to some of them. Um, I didn't go to all of them. I wish that I had made it to Mauritius, for example, and Il Borbor reunion now in the Indian Ocean. Um, I ran out of travel money, basically, <laughs> before I got there, <laughs> although I've heard the archives are great. Um, and then, surprisingly, the Martinican archives are, are really fascinating because they sit at, well, a lot of them are the original archives, um, sat at the base of a volcano that exploded in the early 1900s. And so you also have these kind of environmental problems that make archival yeah. research kind of difficult. Um, so what I ended up doing instead was really grappling with the Imperial Archive itself and thinking about like, what is it that the archive is, is trying to kind of say in the way that it's constructed? Um, the colonial archives that, that most French Francophone scholars use are down in Aix-en-Provence in Southern France. Um, and they were created actually in kind of the moment I'm writing about this kind of 1770s, um, in, in the 1770s in particular. And so they're also a kind of artifact from the period that sort of, mm-hmm as I began to think about kind of how the archive was constructed, it kind of helped me tell the story of a global empire um, from really the archive itself in the way that so many of the archival collections are this early modern project of information gathering, of pulling in reports from um, magistrates and ministers and um, you know other kinds of functionaries who are going out into all of these different places, whether it's Pondicherry and what's now India, um, places like Guyana and what's now um, South America and like mailing back all of these different um, reports. And so I began to kind of use that as something to think with and to kind of think about like, okay, well, what, what kind of argument is, is the whole archive even kind of making? Um, and so that was where there's a kind of surprising way in which the archive piece was actually the easiest part um, to deal with. Mm-hmm. The harder part was actually the, the historiographical piece because I was originally sort of trained as an Atlantic historian. And so I had finished my Atlantic comprehensive exams. I had done what felt like to me the you know maximum amount of reading that a human could possibly ever do. <laughs> Finished, got back from the archives, realized I was doing it an Indian Ocean project too, and realized I was going to have to sit down and read an entirely new field. And so in in a weird way, that was actually the the hardest part was sort of thinking, getting sort of two com- two really you know distinct rigorous historiographies under my belt. Um, and then figuring out how to get them to talk to each other. And that, that's been kind of one of the biggest sort of puzzles of this book. And it really, I think one of the, the outcomes I'm the happiest with is, is finding ways to generate that kind of conversation, which um, when I first started was not a conversation that Atlantic historians and Indian 
ocean historians were, were having with, with a few exceptions. Right. Um, but it's one that in the kind of last 10 years or so has really gotten really, really vibrant. And so I've been really happy to be a part of that conversation. Definitely. I think that this is one of those historiographical trends that is still nascent, but very much a burgeoning field here where we have finally those two historiographies talking to one another in your book mm-hmm. certainly is a, is a big part of that. Um, Archipelago of Justice also deals quite a bit, not only with these different sites, but with spatial history as well. You consider the placement of courts themselves in their communities, as well as the landscape and climate of these tropical locales. So when you were talking about the archive at the base of the volcano, it's very similar to how you you talk about these courts and you think about those environmental factors as well. Chapter two in particular provides some really vivid imagery of what the colonies were like. As you're reading, you almost get a sense for what exactly the street was like, where these people were. You get a really nice, vivid illustration in your mind of what colonies were likely like. Many, like the Ile de Bourbon, thought of themselves constantly under threat from either environmental concerns like volcanoes or hurricanes or monsoons or legal threats as well. Can you discuss a little bit about how the landscape of the colonies perhaps influenced a sense of colonial identity or specific colonial actions? Yeah. Um, so it, it didn't actually initially start out thinking I, I wanted to engage the environment too much, but it's kind of inescapable um, in so many of the, the sources, partly because I, as a social historian, I'm really interested in kind of, you know, what we often call like the lived experience. Um and that means thinking about sort of how people actually live their lives. Like, what does it actually kind of feel like to sit in a particular place, to walk around, be kind of looking around at the world as these historical actors do? Um, and that also, I, I realized, increasingly means considering legal actors not just as people who talk, but as people with bodies, as embodied people. Mm-hmm. And of course, especially if you're looking at slave societies, one of the things you really notice is the way that slavery is physical, It's not just cruel in theory, although it's got plenty of nasty psychological sort of pieces to it. Um, But slavery is always a violent system, right? It's always a system in which people's bodies bear the brunt of punishment. Um, And so those sort of two things kind of came together for me as I was looking at these sources and as I was trying to kind of imagine what these worlds were like for people. Um, And so I, I really sort of became fascinated, really, with what does that mean? It's to sort of stand in a place like Martinique, for example, in the Caribbean, in a place that has gone from being um, populated mostly by indigenous Caribs who have now been mostly completely killed off um, with a tiny white European minority ruling class to with a 90% um, black majority. That's mostly people who have been brought straight over from Africa. Like think about like kind of how, how strange a, a space that is and what it would look mm-hmm. like to be walking around that space, to be kind of thinking about um, how you would even imagine like who you were and like what sort of community you belong to. And so that was part of the question that really led me to this, this question about what a global empire is, um, was not kind of the big picture of what happens if you're looking at a map kind of side, but really the, the very localized, what happens if you're a person sitting at your house and you're trying to imagine this French empire that supposedly, um, you know, rules that rules your daily life, right? In, in really tangible ways, but it's really kind of hard to wrap your mind around. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and then one of the things I do kind of throughout the book is, is try to juxtapose Martinique and the Caribbean with the the Masquerine Islands, um, Ile Bourbon and Ile de France, which now Reunion and Mauritius um, and the Indian Ocean, which are in a lot of ways really similar islands, 
they're tropical, they become slave societies, um, but are situated in these much different oceanic systems. And so part of the, the sort of um, conversation I sort of put them in is to think about like, what are the similarities? What are the differences? And how does that help us understand how experiences of empire can have these commonalities, but also these, these very local differences? That's really interesting um, in terms of thinking about how the people lived there, how the environment influenced them, how all of these different um, sort of spatial identities really get wrapped up in this. Thinking of that, you know, as as you're reading your book, the environment does play a role. Were you influenced at all by the environmental turn? Would you consider yourself at all an environmental historian? Uh, not initially. I mean, I still sort of find myself more interested in, in the people more more than the place. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing I also was sort of found in the, in the sources that comes up all the time um, is this obsession with the environment. Um, and in particular, kind of 18th century French kind of enlightenment era obsession with controlling the environment. Um, there's this kind of underlying idea, especially throughout a lot of what the magistrates are writing, that whatever you enact in law has ramifications for the physical world, not just for the people. And so they're sort of constantly obsessed with like, how do you, how do you write a law in such a way that it'll get like all the people to like line up and do what they're supposed to do, but also so that nature will line up and get what it's and do what it's supposed to do. Um, and so there's this this really interesting way in which the social world and the environmental world are really bound up together for mm-hmm. especially magistrates and kind of legal experts who are writing in this period. Um, so much so that I've kind of got a spinoff project um, that I've been working on that that's really thinking about kind of how domains of knowledge about about environment and about science are tangled up in ideas about law in this period. And so thinking about how what we often think of as like really separate domains of knowledge, like history of science and legal history are sort of separate fields, how Mm -hmm. in a kind of 18th century, especially kind of enlightenment European sort of mindset, those things are really, really closely connected. Right. Um, The other piece I would just say kind of briefly here too, um, is that as I've kind of been working on this project, I've been talking to Indian Ocean historians um, and there's a huge, really amazing body of new work that's been coming out, especially among 20th century um, Indian Ocean historians. I'm thinking, for example, about um, Sunil Amra's book um, recently about monsoons, where one of the things he's arguing is that it's not just that we see climate change kind of affecting how monsoons work in the Indian Ocean world. Um, it's a social phenomenon, too. And so that's um, another kind of piece of this that was really sort of influencing me as I was working on this project. Yeah, that's really interesting, Lori, to see the ways in which society and environment can work together in these ways. Thinking about that that social history angle a little bit more too, you have an interesting point that you make about legal practice and about what legal practice might have been like in the past. In particular, you talk about this issue of deliberative voices that people would have used in the court system. And this brings us to this idea of the history of experience where even the history of sound, what would it have sounded like in the past to be part of this court system? And I was just struck by this idea of they would use a different and deliberative voice to really practice law here. Was this something of a recent invention in the long 18th century, or were deliberative voices a longer history um, in legal practice? Can you tell? Yeah, I mean, it's a question that is still pretty open for me because um, it was something that, again, I kind of found coming up over and over again. One thing I was really struck by as I was looking at court proceedings uh, was the extent to which I'm, I was looking at written sources, but the language was always the language of speech. So talking about deliberative voice, 
Um, there's a whole discourse um, of kind of public outcry, for example, like the way you know a crime has been committed is there's a public outcry. Um, and it, it has a kind of legal valence to it too. It's not just sort of like, mm-hmm. hey, people are yelling in the streets that somebody got murdered. It's There's this idea that kind of the public is a witness. Um, and so I was right. really thinking as I was reading about this, about on the one hand that, of course, most people in this period are still illiterate. And so that made sense to me that that you would talk in terms of, of sound, right? That people aren't mm-hmm. necessarily going to read the legal sources that I'm looking at. Um, but it also got me thinking a lot about the way that justice is really performative. Um, you can think about slogans. You can think about statues, right? We've been talking about that a lot <laughs> lately. Um, thinking about like nonverbal signals, Um and something that I think especially historians of, say, of, of slave societies, and particularly th- I'm thinking here of like the American South, um, not just in the era of slavery, but even in the era of Jim Crow, that that's something we might call etiquette, right? All of these like nonverbal rules about like who is supposed to talk, um, whose voice really matters, who gets to be a witness, who doesn't, mm-hmm. um, which, of course, is really important in keeping slavery in place, right? The, the kind of maintaining that distinction between mastery, uh, master and slave Um ends up often being this kind of performative thing too, right? It's a lot about who gets to talk, who gets to read, um, and also who gets to punish, right? And so there's a kind of per- performative mm-hmm. aspect um, to the the punishment itself. And so I really started thinking about that um, in terms of, of what people are hearing. Um, and this is something that I'd really like to kind of explore even more in the future. So my colleague, Martin Monroe, who's in the French department at FSU, um, is actually doing a project right now on the, the history of early modern French Caribbean soundscapes. And so he's kind of taking hmm. this question as a much bigger piece and thinking about things like songs, um, thinking about things like kind of public rituals. Um, and so I'm really excited to see how this kind of newer work on soundscapes kind of can, can be read back um, perhaps even more into these like legal um, terms that I've been working on, like deliberative voice. Absolutely. I think that'll be really fascinating. It made me even think about, you have a section in there about town criers. Mm-hmm. And I had always just imagined the town criers as literally going to a town square, you know, yelling something out, and that was the <laughs> end of it. And you you demonstrate that actually the town crier played a much more um, sort of detailed role in both the legal system as well as the social system in these places as sort of the purveyor of knowledge and information, which I thought was very interesting. And so that relates back to sound too, because we're dealing with a largely illiterate society. Yeah. And the way that sound kind of tells you about power, right? The, the yeah. sound tells you about like kind of where, where space is demarcated. I mean, one thing that was really interesting to me about these 10 criers is the way that they, they walk these very specific kind of pathways uh-huh. and they walk kind of to the edge of the town boundary, but no farther. They have this like very kind of clear. So they're, they're quite literally like marking out jurisdiction with right. their bodies and with their, their voices as they're doing this. Um, but often they're also accompanied by enslaved people which is a kind of interesting piece too, thinking about like, what does it mean to kind of stand alongside as witness and to be in this legally, socially, culturally subservient position, right? Um, and what do you, like, what, you know, what would it mean for an enslaved person to kind of watch all of this happen? Like what must they have been thinking about this too? Yeah. And I think you do this really well in the book is that each of these actions and each of these issues, you tie back to that idea of power and state formation and everything is imbued with some sense of, of, a, of a hierarchy that they're trying to build in here. And I think that's a great example. Um, both you and I were Julie Hardwick students. 
And I think I can see her influence in certain sections of this book because I think probably <laughs> most most people um, of their of their advisors could see different sections. In particular, you emphasize um, the legal system as dependent upon kinship networks, and that feels very Hardwickian to me in certain ways. It also reminds me a little bit of Francesco Trivellato's 2010 book, The Familiarity of Strangers, uh, where there's both kin and non-kin networks essential to Jewish business networks. It seems like a very similar story for the legal profession, and then by extension, the cementing of legal knowledge and justice in the French colonies. Why are kinship networks so central to this story in the colonies? I mean, I could just sort of say, you know, it's, it's the classic adage, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Um, and that's <laughs> definitely a big piece of it. Like the way people sort of get jobs um, is, do they know? Um, but I think a better way of kind of framing that question is to say, how do you get Europeans to go to the colonies in the first place? Because mm. um, they're not necessarily the places everybody knows about. They're places lots of people know about. Um, and the people who know about the colonies are usually people in port cities. They're people who are standing there watching boats come in and out. They hear stories. Um, there are tons. I mean, port cities are great because people are telling stories constantly. Um, right. They're passing rumors around. Um, this is why actually the rumor networks have become a really big piece of my, my next book that's about women. Because one thing I noticed was how much people just kind of jabber and talk when a, new, when a ship comes into town. People are telling stories about what they've seen. But that also means this is kind of where people pick up on colonial employment as a possibility. Um, and so that ends up being one sort of kind of practical way that people get to colonies. The other one, of course, is another sort of practical question is like, who actually knows how to run a colony um, mm -hmm. or who actually knows how to run a court? Um, and again, it's usually people who've done it before. And so um, early modern period, of course, is like shot through with um, patronage, right? You, the way you get a job is quite literally often by like buying it from the king or um, because the king knows your cousin, right? It's all these kind of interpersonal networks. And right. so that's another another piece of it. Too. Um, and I found that to be really kind of fascinating that after a certain point, I would recognize names and I would sort of be like, oh, that guy, well, he knew this other guy. Um, and that's how he must have known about this job in, you know, Mauritius or wherever. Um, and so you end up finding these kind of clusters and it's actually pretty easy to track um, these kind of groups of people who have either grown up together in the same port town. So, like Samalo, for example, um, which is a Norman port town in France, um, sends tons of people to the Indian Ocean, but basically nobody to the Caribbean. Um, Bordeaux, on the other hand, is really famous for being extremely involved in the, the slave trade and therefore in the Caribbean. Yeah, I think that that's, that would be a lot to organize and to trace. How are you able to do all of that? Yeah, I mean, part of it was just kind of, you know, just sort of, I mean, sometimes sticky notes, sometimes just <laughs> um, <laughs> I try to build a database at some point. Um, I, I was really working on kind of networks of lawyers in particular, because I mean, lawyers are a little bit less common. And so it was a little bit easier to, to track them. Um, than other ones. Um, but part of it is you, just, you kind of read a bunch of them and wait for kind of names to pop up. Right. Um, but I did, and this is part of, I think, why I ended up actually deciding on the Conseil Barrier as a, as a kind of organizing mechanism because it gave me a way of organizing the personnel too, of thinking about kind of who, who ends up in what institution and that kind of helps you track the, the people a little bit more easily too. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that we see the ways in which these kinship networks are really essential to the state formation and to global expansion in, in early modern France, for sure. Well, we look like we're almost out of time, but you've mentioned a few times some interesting new projects that you're working on. So I want to make sure that you have some time to talk about those. So what are you working on right now? 
Yeah, so I have several short pieces going. I mean, I mentioned there's a a, a project I've got on this kind of like law and science thing, which is mm-hmm. kind of a slow germinating project. The main thing, though, is actually a, a second book project, which is currently titled Precarious Fortunes, Women, Catastrophe, and Complicity in the French Tropics. Um, and this comes out of that kind of rumor network that I was talking about before, where one thing I kind of kept noticing uh was that women were, were a lot more kind of apparent in my sources than I expected. One thing colonial historians always write about is the way that um, colonies, particularly tropical slave societies, um, are notoriously demographically unbalanced um, mm. in their enslaved population, but also in their uh, free population, that women tend to be really, really scarce. But I found tons of women, um, mostly who had been left behind in port cities, who are constantly kind of talking um, and get very, very upset when, for example, their husband goes overseas to make his fortune and it's been three years and he's not back yet. <laughs> and so they start making inquiries um, and they're really persistent and they show up with all their friends and they say, hey, look, we know that um, Martinique is far away. We know that it takes about this long to get there. We know that it takes about this long to get back. So we're still waiting and we haven't heard anything. What can you find out for us? And so they start asking all these pesky questions. Um, They also end up, because of the way property law works, um, often inheriting plantations um, Mm. and running them. And so one of the kind of pieces here, um, it's partly a kind of story about household labor and about precarity, which I think is something in our kind of current moment we we think about a lot. Um, And especially the way that, that labor gets disproportionately kind of um, put on women, even if it's not acknowledged. And so I was really interested in like, what kind of labor are women doing to manage and kind of help uphold the, the slave system, even if it's not visible labor. Yeah. Um, and the other piece of that is something where I kind of see myself doing a, a spin on Stephanie um, Jones Rogers recent book um, about the American South and thinking about how mastery and complicity, especially in slavery, um, isn't just gendered male, it's gendered female. Mm-hmm. Um, and so thinking about that kind of complicated way in which women, whether they're planters in their own right, or if they're just kind of, you know, happen to be married to somebody who makes some money off of slavery, like how do we, how do we understand women as on the one hand, you know, at the bottom of this patriarchal system, right. But also absolutely complicit and very much involved in what we now recognize as kind of the origins of modern capitalism too. Um, and capitalism yeah. that's very much founded on the backs of enslaved laborers. Yeah. That's that is- issue of mistresses also hold power. It's not just slave masters mm-hmm. during this period. That's really interesting, Lori. I can't wait to see both of those projects in, in different stages. And thank you so much for joining us today. I, this was a really fascinating conversation. And for all of our listeners, find Archipelago of Justice at Yale University Press. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great chat. <laughs>